Have you ever stopped to think about yourself and your story? If someone were to write your memoir, what would it say? We all seek some level of authenticity, but have trouble removing the labels and finding our whole story. Welcome to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. In this program, we'll explore diverse stories on identity to help determine what is truly yours. Now, here is your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to the show, everyone. We're very glad to have you with us on Dropping In. We're going to talk about obsession in the age of COVID-19, the pandemic, what we need and are addicted to. We have with us today the author of a beautiful new book called This Is My Body, a memoir of religious and romantic obsession, obsession being a key word. Uh, Cameron Desen Hammond will be with us to talk and about the times that we live in, that we're, they're producing a test of our patience, our courage, our ability to question truth and even authority sometimes. Um, some of us are coping day to day as best we can. And then at other times, we're wondering what this all means. Uh, our need to be vigilant uh, is stoked every day by the news. I, for one, have taken off my Apple Watch um, just for my sanity because the news updates keep me constantly jumpy. We need to be vigilant, yes, um, but we cannot, I mean, cannot be careful enough. It's really important to be humble in the face of what we're being told by science and the medical community. But can we manage to be healthy if we're consumed with anxiety uh, for being obsessed over what's going on? Rituals and bringing our bodies into activity and some semblance of wholeness and connecting with ourselves are really needed more than ever now. We have to, um, we, we have to bring ourselves to a point of balance so that we can understand whether we chalk this experience with COVID up to a randomness in the universe or whether we think that it's actually something that's here to teach us something, a great teacher um, that we can, if we take some time, look at and try to understand ourselves better. Obsession and how to put it down is at the core of this book, This Is My Body by Cameron Desen Hammond. It's a book that's ostensibly about one woman's tested faith and her marriage that is pitted against an intense attraction to someone other than her husband the man, she calls him, a husband who is real versus what lies over the edge in our imagination. These things often collide, and it's part of what we're doing right now, just coping with information, fears, beliefs, and thought trains that get going out of control. Um, And we learn from Cameron what all these people signify to her, what the role of her faith was, and how we can, by reading and listening to her, um, help to manage our own thoughts in an overwhelming time. Welcome to the show, Cameron. It's so great to have you with us. Thank you. I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, bio on Cameron Desen Hammond. She is a writer and musician living in Houston. Her essays, poems, and stories have appeared in Guernica, The Rumpus, Ecotone, The Houston Chronicle, The Butter, Nylon, The Literary Review, 
Brevity's nonfiction blog, Columbia's Poetry Review, and elsewhere. You get the picture. She appears in the best publications in the literary world. Her writing has been anthologized in The Kiss, Intimacies from Writers, very appropriate to this book, from W.W. Norton, and of My Cesarean, 20 Mothers on the Experience of Birth by C-Section and After, Uh, from the establishment, and she is honored as notable in the Best American Essays of 2017. Her writing also appears in Catapult, Ecotone, The Literary Review, The Houston Chronicle, and uh, Nylon, among other places. She earned her MFA from the Seattle Pacific University, and Cameron is host of the Ish podcast, Conversations from the Liminal Spaces in Life and co-founder of the Houston-based literary reading series, The Slant. Her first book, This Is My Body, a memoir of religious and romantic obsession, is now available on www.cameronduzenhammond.com or at your local indie bookseller, who delivers, hopefully still, or ships. And of course, Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com. Welcome, Cameron. We're so delighted that you're here. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Um, I, I just want to congratulate you. First of all, it's um, it's a slim book. It's an elegant book, uh, but it packs a lot of punch, and it's been a great experience for me to read it. I just want to commend you. First off, um, you've got this uh, romantic attraction going Um and in, it's in the midst of your work um, with a megachurch and as a musician uh, singing with your husband who plays guitar. Um, and this obsession develops from a writer's conference um, that you attend. And um, we, we all know the evils of writer's conferences. No, but it, it truly, it's a place where people come together and think together. And it does become a hotbed for ideas and crossover and um, sometimes those messages get they go a little astray, um, and and I mm-hmm. just want to I just want to say, Cameron, that you know, first off, the fact that you recognized your obsession with this man as an obsession and didn't just take it as I'm in love, I it's all consuming, it's my reality. At a certain point, there's a tipping point where you recognize this as. Uh, a love addiction uh, as an obsession and you head off to sex and love addicts um, a group therapy Uh, and this this out of this chaos um, and this therapy sessions you start to get a handle on this um, as an obsession and you start kind of calling a spade a spade and uh, I just want to congratulate you on that um, for those of us that are often lost inside our obsessions and can't recognize them as such, so um, well done that you did that. Uh, I know that was a long <laughs> that was you. a long that was a long process, maybe um, from it the was. Begin- yeah from the beginning um, to to where you realize that. And another cause for celebration is that you wrote this book. Um, it's shimmering, it's edgy, it's uncomfortable, it's stripped bare. It's all the things we love. And it gives you um, another platform. And I felt that this was something um, in the kind of claustrophobia of the early part of the book where all of your eggs are in one basket, right? Your, your, Your work, your husband, your child, your whole life is wrapped up in, in the megachurch 
and you don't really have a platform outside the church. And if one thing tips or collapses, like your music or the doubt that you might experience in your faith, then your whole world collides and collapses. Um, so I think yeah. it's really a wonderful thing that you've come out of that and um, you're, you, you've gone from constraint to this liberating, I think, authordom, authorship of your own voice. Has it been liberating to expand your identity this way? Yes, it, it absolutely has. And thank you for, um, for, for saying that and for recognizing that. It was exactly as you described. It was sort of a world built with various sort of fail-safes that I had not recognized I had been putting into place that if one part of my world failed, the whole thing would collapse. And, um, you know, a strange thing for one to do, but I did that. Um, and absolutely, I mean, living this and writing it um, has opened up another world to me for which I'm very grateful. So, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. But I, I wonder, you know, how strange it really is because we all get caught up in the worldview that we have. Look at how we thought of ourselves three months ago. You know, it, it wasn't, mm-hmm. it couldn't end. We were on the roller coaster. We were having the ride of our life. There was, you know, money going around. People felt secure. Um, there was no sense that there could be anything else. And, you know, sometimes I think this invisible web, it really is invisible. We don't know how interconnected it all is that when one piece comes out, like the, our health, um, you know, everything else tumbles. And I, I really, I think the fact that you did take a step out um, of your microcosm, um, and, and also you describe in the book how that came about, right? You you had um, you had a health scare, actually, of your own. Um, that led you to the point of baptism in an evangelical church. And um, I, I think that was probably a certain a sense of belonging for you then, a certain sense of rescue for you then, maybe a purge. But, you know, you're, you're yeah. ultimately a, a creative person, right? You're an author, a songwriter, a musician. And then you were inside this church that was very uh, conservative, and you were navigating very conventional roles, uh, mother, wife, member yeah. of this, you know, anti-feminist, mostly misogynist church. I just feel like, mm-hmm. how, did, how did all of that feel? Was there a dissonance going on at this time? You know, how was it? <clears throat> I mean, how did we get here, right? Like, that's just the, sort of the ultimate question. Um, as far as the dissonance, I mean, I... You know, I think about myself then um, and and wonder the same. I mean, though I wrote the book and I lived it, it, it even still now kind of um, mystifies me, you know, that I that I did sort of jump headlong into a um, into a community that did not affirm um, me. But, you know, t- to be fair, and I think that I write about this somewhat in the book, it was sort of a, it was a slow process. Um, you know, there, there were many years and many churches. Um, the first church that I was a part of in Brooklyn, in New York, I was baptized, um, on Coney Island by a group of very unusual Christians who came to Brooklyn from, um, England who were very egalitarian. Um, Mm -hmm. they were very, um, 
you know, pro, you know, environment, pro art. I mean, they were totally unusual to what I sort of met in various stages later. So it wasn't like I jumped in first, you know, first stop, <laughs> you know, hyper conservative Southern Baptist church. That's not at all what, um, what happened. It was a, kind of a slow burn. Um, it was when I got to Texas, I moved from Brooklyn to Texas sort of shortly after my baptism, after 9-11, I got engaged because I believe that, you know, the, my, my boyfriend and I, like if we were going to have a sexual relationship, we needed to get married and we were, you know, we were definitely in love, but my, my changing beliefs about sex and sexuality had a big part in making that decision. And because he was, you know, the man, like I decided I would move to Texas and we would start over there. Um, so it was like, I, I sort of tried on the belief like piece by piece and, Mm -hmm. you know, over time, like eventually I found my way into communities that were, yes, conservative and yes, um, non-affirming. And there was dissonance and it took a tremendous amount of um, discipline to quiet the voices in my, in my head that, you know, protested. Um, Absolutely. You know, as I, I write, I write a little bit about like, you know, secretly sending money to Planned Parenthood, you know, while attending and working for conservative churches. Like I was still trying to rectify and, um, and understand the various parts of myself, but it was in secret uh, for right. sure. Right. But you, you had those communications going out and that's, that's kind of cool. I, I also, when I was reading the, you know, your, your, the first group that you were with, um, it, it really did sound attractive. And it's a time of life when we're all questioning, right? We're all, um, you know, getting, trying to yeah. get a philosophy going for ourselves. And it's also a time, I think, when, when we're young that, you know, there's, there's a much more, I don't know what, a, a, like an external locus of control where yeah. we're, you know, we need this belonging in order to um, feel ourselves. And I, I, I agree. It, it was incremental. And also the early steps that you took in Brooklyn, I, I could totally understand doing that. I could relate to it. I felt like, um, you know, we were all on this, you know, existential quest at that time, reading writers and um, poets who would allow us to think deeply about things. So, it, it, it isn't really hard to understand how you got into it. Um, and I do mm-hmm. think there's a, there's a very subtle but strong shift in the book from this beginning where you're, you're really looking, you know, you're, you're looking, you, you, you're a performer. You, you, so you, you look to the audience also for affirmation once you get to Houston and, um, you've married this love, and um, and it's it's very it's very touching the back and forth uh, of your love affair with your husband. Um, I, I think you know, but then you you arrive at this place where, and and uh, like many of us have been there. Oh my God, I'm a wife. What's expected of me? Oh, what's expected of me as um, a performer? A you know this person in this role, and you know those demands start to become. They get louder, and um, and I yeah. think you were sending off this money. That I think that's very touching. It, it tells me there was this inner person, still an inner beating heart that comes through very well in the book. This is my body, um, and I, I I just think the transformation is is incredible. Um, let me just 
go on here. You you are then taking um, part in in a church that's an evangelical church, correct? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And p- part of that equation is um, conversion. You you need to you know people part of the. Um, sort of, you know, triumph of being a church member is to convince others to be part of your faith. Um, and you go to, is it Prague or um, where, where, you go to um, Budapest? No, where do, where Budapest. do you go? Budapest, right. Budapest, you're, yeah. you're in Budapest and you meet this man who's in a park where you and your husband and others are performing and the concerts are to draw people into the faith that you are experiencing mm-hmm your Christian faith, and here's this guy, he's kind of nomadic, and he's drawn into your orbit just kind of as a friend, a helper. You help him by providing a a place for him to stay for a month, and then you start to realize, um, you you need to kind of report back home that, you know, this person, you you did what you were supposed to do, you tried to convert him, right? This was part of of a mission. Um, and and yep. that's understandable too, because you know, after all, it it was your job, and there's right. so there's so much power that you know there's such an there's a, such a sense of um, interpersonal power. You need to dominate, you know, the thoughts of someone else to bring them over to your sphere, um, and and I wonder. You know, you, you weren't successful, thank goodness. I, you know, I'm sorry. Um, he, he walked away, essentially. Um, d- did that start to ring bells in your mind about, wait a second, what am I doing? Or how your mission was unfolding in your life? Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's why I included it, you know, in the book. I, I think that my experience in Budapest and that chapter that goes through our time there um, was really a turning point um, for me in that I was kind of brought face to face with uh, the parts of the mission that just didn't sit well, well with me. And, um, you know, the parts of the mission that didn't sit, sit well with me were just this idea that we had to or were there to convert people, to get them to essentially pray a prayer, say some magical words, and thus be you know, um, indoctrinated into the kingdom of God. And, um, you know, we, I mean, we knew and we felt like this isn't like, this can't be real, but yet it was, it was what, what, how we um, marked success. Um, so yeah, so that, that was a huge turning point. I mean, my relationship, our relationship to, you know, that young man, like was defined by the way that we had to see him sort of as a project you know, and not just as a friend or a fellow traveler. Um, And, you know, we we're still in touch. I mean, that our relationship wasn't broken, but there were years where, you know, we weren't um, at all in touch. You know, as I write about, I think that, you know, I sent him a couple of notes like, are you still going to church? Are you still a Christian? And, you know, he didn't respond, which spoke volumes. Um, the live and let live so, yeah. um, 
part of it. And I, you know, I we're we're going to um, we're going to have to stop for pause for a commercial break here. But um, when we come back, we're going to talk about this idea of like, well, what what could you take out of the faith that was you know meaningful? What what did happen to Cameron after returning from Budapest, and what happens to all of us um, when we're faced with an incredible obsession with another human being. You won't want to miss it. Come back and we'll be back in just a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's manuscript coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out, finding the inner story and what you want to say, developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D media.com. Or on her author's page, dianedewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Cameron Desen Hammond, the author of a beautiful new book, This Is My Body. It is a memoir. It's a story about love and obsession, but it's wrapped inside um, a story about faith. Uh, and I really think the dimensions of this book, it's slim volume. It's beautifully written. Um, and it says, it speaks volumes uh, in a very, very, very um, concise way. The author, Cameron Desen Hammond, is also a songwriter. Cameron, do you, do you think that even writing songs, the, the concise sort of condensed way songs unfold, has it informed your writing uh, of the book? Because you do it so succinctly. Thank you. That's a very kind thing to say. Um, I, I hope so. Um, 
I, I definitely am an artist who rotates, sort of rotates the crops. So I don't typically work on songs. I'm working on longer prose pieces. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I, the first, you know, thing I ever wrote in my life um, were poems and poems and songs obviously have so much in common. So, I mean, I hope that they're connected. I also think that the concise nature of the book, I have to um, credit my brilliant editor who is just so wonderful um, and so helpful with this book, Beth Staples at Lookout Books. Um, she had a big hand in uh, the concision for sure. So, well, it's it's something yeah. that um, you know. I feel as though somehow it's a, it's also a natural inclination stepping from poetry because. Yes, and it's great. We all need editors, but sometimes, you know, it ends up feeling chopped and this doesn't have that. It's a really um, elegant flow. And one of the things we were talking about before the break was this idea of obsession, religious obsession, and evangelical need to convert people. Um, This kind of lovely man that you met in Prague, or sorry, Budapest. And, um, you know, I feel like here we are in the midst of a pandemic and, you know, we're all searching again for something. Um, some of us always were, but it brings to light uh, a need for some kind of peace. Um, in my church of, of my origin, it, it was always called the peace, which, which path is all, path is all understanding. Um, and yeah. it's, it's some kind of a connection to the divine, right? We're, we are looking now, we're realizing the connect, that our connection to one another is so powerful. And now that it's been interrupted, we see it in its absence. Um, you know, we're connecting in different ways. And, um, you know, maybe our community um, is just a much more beautiful and potent thing than we ever imagined. I, I wondered, you know, for you and what you've taken away from your years um, with the church, as you mentioned, there was not just one church, but with, for example, um, the mega church that you were singing with, and um, you know there had to be threads from that um, that that have come through with you. Um, and looking at this time, is it you know is it here to teach us something? What do you what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think. I certainly, I hope that every season um, brings with it um, some kind of teacher. And I, and I think if there was a teacher from the season I spent in, you know, a megachurch or in sort of performative religion or performative Christianity, that the teacher would be um, to point out the difference between sort of a quiet um, faith or a an abiding spiritual practice and the performance of faith mm-hmm. um, that, you know, performance doesn't, doesn't serve us during a pandemic. Um, you know, I, I have a, a friend who posted something the other day about like what this pandemic is doing to sort of reveal the church. Like, you know, is it a place that, provides services and classes and events that we go to once a week? Or, you know, is it um, a place or a people that um, just quietly abide in each other and um, in their belief about a God of their own understanding? You know, like, 
like, like the rubber really meets the road in moments like these for the, the church. Um, so, you know, I, I can say that now that our ability to perform on Sunday mornings in a, in a corporate space has been suspended, you know, um, what it, what is faith look like when it's practiced, you know, quietly to, you know, alone. I mean, that's, you know, even in Christian, in Christianity, that's, we're supposed to be focused on that, going to our closet alone in, 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 uh, in silence and in, um, secret and praying, you know, like, so it's sort of like what our individual practice looks and feels like is so much more important now because it's all we have. Um, so yeah, so I, I definitely took away from that season, um, the understanding of the difference between the two, the public and the private. Well, I think that that's um, a very beautiful thing, the the quiet abiding of faith um, versus the performance. But I, because honestly, two things that you said really resonate. One is um, clearly we're at the intersection of power and faith because, yeah. Yeah. for example, here, and, and really it's almost a subject that feels um, very dark, at times, because here in Florida, there is a megachurch for whom the, the, the pastor was just arrested because um, as recently as last Sunday, was having physical in-person, 500-person um, get-togethers, encouraging laying hands on one another. Um, yeah. so, so this refuting, okay, of science and what we knew um, to, to actually help us as human beings get through this pandemic. Um, there's a real clash there. That, that I kind of yeah. almost want to leave alone because I, I just, um, what can you do? It's something that, you know, our governor in, in Florida has, um, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth, permitting, not permitting. Anyway, it sounds as though, believe it or not, some of these things are going to go on. I much prefer and relate to what you're speaking of, the very quiet abiding, whatever that looks like, whether it looks like going out in nature and studying the stars or sitting alone, you know, or sitting just, you know, in contemplation. The other thing that really struck me about what you said is the season, because the one thing that I've hung hung on to is this um, sort of, you know, the Ecclesiastes, you know, to everything, there is a season and a time and a purpose, yeah. you know, and, you know, that, that, that chapter um, from the Bible, which I, I confess I rarely, you know, rarely tap into, it just has resonated mostly because of the bird song of, you know, 1965. To yeah, return. yeah. <laughs> it's a time great to song. be born. Yeah, it's a great song. A time to die, a time to plant. Um, a time to kill. I've got it in front of me. Sorry, I won't go on forever. But it's it's a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to weep, a time to mourn, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. It's so yeah, just, yeah. It touches wow, that gives me chills for sure. Yeah, yeah. It it just gives me goosebumps. Um, and these um, this contextual this ability to contextualize the time that we're in and maybe its purpose. I think it's really significant and the way in which, you know, everyone, Victor Frankl said, you know, suffering only only continues to be suffering when you don't find meaning in it. Right now we are yeah. suffering. We're suffering in a very yeah. real way. Um, but, you know, I think the hope is that, you know, as you say, people 
start to go inward, start to listen to themselves again. Um, and um, I just really appreciate, you know, you delivering delivering a book that actually um, gave us a, a, a context for that as well. You talk about in the book, and in, in the book, the book title of the book is "This Is My Body." Uh, a memoir of re- religious and romantic obsession. Don't worry, we'll, we will get to the romantic obsession. <laughs> this is really, you know, this is a very, very uh, intense attraction that you had. Um, but, you know, starting with physicality, you talk about um, speaking in tongues in the book, and somehow I, I went right to singing because there is something vibrational about this. There is a physical manifestation of communicating and faith, Um and the, the title of the book is This Is My Body, which comes from the Eucharist and, you know, the body of Christ. And uh, yeah. it's, it's something, oh, and I also want to say we're, we're focusing on a very, you know, maybe a narrow wedge of, of Christianity. The whole ecclesiastic, Ecclesiastes part that we talked about with the seasons and the purposes, that comes from the oldest portion of the Hebrew Bible, um, between the Song and Sol- Song of Solomon and Lamentations, um, it has been translated into many cultures, Greek, um, and um, was originally written around, uh, well, before Christ, 4, 450 to 200. So it's the oldest part of canonical wisdom. I just want to get that in there so that we realize we're, we're, we're talking about a very open envelope here. But back to this physicality and way of physically manifesting faith and then on into you know attraction but for you 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 enjoy this physicality right there's part of it that you revert to even through ritual even now you say mm-hmm. yeah I think um the, the title of the book actually came originally came from a, a short flash essay that I wrote about experiencing a miscarriage um and the way that the experience of Eucharist or taking communion in church, um, in a church that was very, very pro-reproduction and very sort of focused on, you know, women having babies, um, how that um, kind of changed the way I saw the Eucharist and also my body. Um, and, you know, I think I think a, a funny thing I've learned about myself in the process of reading, of writing this book and, and talking about it is that to to call it this is my body and to focus on the body or at least presumably focus on the body is sort of a a guardrail that I put up for myself because I'm far more naturally in my head like I'm mm-hmm. definitely um <laughs> I'm definitely a you know a cerebral thinking feeling person and not as well um, a person who understands the power of the body and the importance of living into it and being present. So it's like a bit of this is my body is about reminding myself to return to my body. Um, You know, Protestant Christianity sort of notoriously is in the head, um, is is sort of known as being, you know, very intellectual, very um, thought-based. You know, and some other versions of of Christianity, I mean, even Catholicism is far more grounded in the body. Um, You know, orthodoxy is more grounded in the body in terms of the, the, even the belief of, you know, the, the Eucharist, the, you know, the transfiguration and believing um, the actual physical presence of Christ in the bread, which is, you know, not, not widely accepted among Protestants. So, you know, I, in the last several weeks, you know, and I kind of say all the time that I'm really terrible at prayer and I'm really terrible at 
the physical ritual of um, faith and religious practice um, because I'm so in my head. But in the last mm-hmm. couple of weeks, you know, in the season of this pandemic, like I have found myself creating a ritual, a prayer ritual every evening, kind of yes. getting more serious about, you know, meditation and, and you know, but, you know, completely driven by necessity, um, you know, because I need to put my mind and body, you know, focused on one thing for a brief, as, you know, as long as I can to sort of escape like the cycle of the news and the cycle of the anxiety. Um, and it's been really interesting for me, like in the last couple of weeks, I, I feel that that practice is grounding me and it's giving me some, some relief and some connection to, you know, God as I understand God. So, um, Absolutely. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> no, you did. Um, my questions yeah. are so nebulous that there's no way you can't answer them anyway. <laughs> really, they're, they're, it's, it's <laughs> okay. all, it's all, we're all just floating and flowing. So, I, I but I relate to what you're saying because I think that you know there's a way in which when we're under so much stress that unless we get outside ourselves into something ritualistic, whether it's lighting candles yeah. in the evening or you know having just moments together with our thoughts, um, you know we're, we're we first of all we will um, diminish our own health, our own ability to uh, keep our immune systems alive and well, and we'll become more susceptible. We have to, in these times, keep ourselves holistically healthy. And I think the fact that you know staying present physically, um, you know, I just want to toss it out there. I mean, I understand this idea of being very cerebral because in the end, God is a concept, right? It's a concept. Yeah. It's one that we feel. We can certainly say we feel spirit, um, but you know, there's no proof, and so some yeah, religions yeah. had to, had to make a Christ figure, and some religions had to make other um, imagery. But in the end, it's spirit, and it's something that's moving through us, and it isn't identifiable physically. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah absolutely, it, it lends itself to this. Um, here's here's we're going to believe it or not have to take another break, but which is not a bad thing. But we um, we're going to take a look then at your obsession and this unavailable man, um, and where this obsession you know took you. Um, I love this poem that you include, "Diving into the Wreck" by Adrian Rich. It's easy to forget what I came for, the wreck, and not the story of the wreck, the thing itself, and not the wit, not the myth. So I think like this, you know, refuting the myth and getting to the wreck, it takes such courage, mm-hmm. bravery, um, and let's when we come back talk about how you uh, dismantled the myth of another man. Don't go away. We'll be back with Cameron Desen Hammond. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's manuscript coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out, finding the inner story and what you want to say, developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? 
If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D media.com. Or on her author's page, dianedewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here speaking with Cameron Desen-Hammond, author of the book, This Is My Body. It's a memoir of romantic and religious obsession. And maybe at this point, those are the more sensationalistic aspects. We've really gotten to a point where we're talking about a quietude and um, accessing a more personal, um, intimate space for, um, for reflection in this time. And I, I really, um, Cameron, you know, we just talked about Adrian Rich's poem and this kind of confronting of of an experience and dismantling myths so what happens when you become obsessed with someone um another person who's enormously attractive and you also you know just mentioned that you kind of discounted the power of your physical body but you know in the end it's enormously powerful right you you Mm -hmm. You have the ability through your music to sway a congregation, to see them, you write, that you see them surrender, um, you know, some parts of themselves and to get in touch with whatever they believe in. And, you know, it it is enormous, the power that we have. And your um, attraction to this person who you could only ever hope to have a sliver of their life, okay, this is another man outside of your marriage. So the other man, whether it's us as the other woman or the other man as that, um, he's inaccessible, he is unavailable. And mm-hmm. so the, the obsession forms around that, right? It's, it's the mm-hmm. unavailability. Yeah the desirability of that, and you go into it um, extensively. And I, I wondered, you know, you had, sorry if this if this does get personal, but you write about it in the book. You had a dad who dipped in and out of being accessible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I had an, uh, an abandoning father, um, and I, I do think that these set up these dynamics for obsession. Uh, I wonder mm-hmm. if you agree. I, w- I wonder if you agree with that. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I 
I think it set up not only my, you know, sort of proclivity to become obsessed with unavailable men in a romantic sense, but also with an unavailable God, um, right. you know, which is kind of the, what I hope is the kind of the central conceit of the book is this idea that the way that myth shapes romantic love is very similar um, to how it shapes religious love or religious adoration or belief. Um, you know, when I was working on this book, the, the thing that unlocked it for me creatively was coming to this awareness that, that, you know, sort of communicating with someone that you don't ever see, you know, via text message, um, you know, or even just you're in your thoughts is a lot like prayer. You know, you're sort of sending these ideas and these thoughts off into the abyss um, towards something that you have wholly, you know, imagined. Um, mm-hmm. And so as far as romantic love, romantic obsession, you know, when, when the person is, is unavailable and absent, it allows the imagination to fill in the blanks. And, you know, in that case, an idealized person is created, of course, right? Because there's nothing, <laughs> you know, there's nothing in, in reality to contradict that idealized image that, that I've, that I created in my, in my head. Um, so, so true. yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely think, you know, I think it, you know, as far as when we talk about, you know, abandoning fathers or, you know, uh, you know, a fa- father, father issues or daddy issues or whatever, it's kind of like, yeah, like, yeah, you know, we know that. I mean, it, it's sort of talked about a lot, you know, that, that an absent father can create these patterns. But I think like, I think it's it's even bigger in our culture. I think it kind of even goes beyond, you know, just you know those of us who who had fathers that were unavailable. I think that we we are trained to want what we cannot have um, because it also is the engine of capitalism. So, right. um, you, you know, it, it it's yeah. I think it's everywhere. Sure. And I, I mean, I love this yeah. idea. I mean, I'm glad that you went ahead and um, drew the line to um, mythology of religion, because I think it creates a certain kind of religion. It's a mythic, it's a, it, it's first of all, very powerful, it has power over us, it is um, guaranteeing things that are questionable, such as everlasting life. Um, and it's very seductive. Uh, so, you know, again, back to where you're talking about a more granular kind of faith, it's the opposite, right? It's a very archetypical, yeah. like a huge um, omniscient kind of re- religious imagery and mythology that's scary sometimes. And I, I, I also think that, you know, you, you beautifully correlated it to consumerism and the need, the ever-present need to have more different other um, the thing that's just over the over the edge, you know, in um, New yeah. York, it was always women were never able to, that I knew, um, were never able to settle down with anyone because what if they met somebody around the corner who was better? You know, it's, it's, it's a right. way of never being able to settle in with something that even feels very right um, because what else is out there? So, and I think with your your concept of this person who you're communicating with, this is that's key t- to me because I think once you start communicating with the object of your obsession, you've created a level of um, mystique that's much deeper than if you're just keep imagining what's that person doing, what's that person thinking. I also want to come back to the idea that love and this this kind of adoration and I shouldn't really call it love this obsessive adoration 
is a lens through which we see ourselves and ourselves become this kind of goddess. We mythologize ourselves in those relationships and those dynamics. We are a goddess. We have the power to seduce. And what's more, we have eternity because needless to say, this love will last forever. Both of these are shattering myths, myths that could splinter and should splinter. You know, it's, it's the most fragile kind of belief system imaginable that, you know, you do a great job of puncturing in, in the book, but that didn't come easy for you. You did the hard no. work. And, I did um, a lot you, of work. You did a <laughs> yes. lot of work. How did you go about it? You know, I, um, at the beginning of this saga, um, when these, this, these feelings and this communication, this relationship, Alyssa relationship started, like I had the specter of my parents' marriage, um, sort of in my, in my mind's eye. And I, I distrusted the enormity of what I was feeling and I, and I could see sort of the path that it would take me on and, I did not want my kid to go through what I went through as a, as a child and my parents' marriage split up and, and how ugly that was. So I, you know, went, I, one thing that I do is I reach out and I reached out to a therapist and I looked for helpers and I looked for help. And so, um, I went to therapy. My therapist told me to go to SLAA, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. You know, which I have complicated feelings about now, like, but at the time, you know, I mean, I've, oh, I guess I've always had complicated feelings about it, but, but it, it definitely was what I needed. Um, it allowed me to be in a community of people that were also looking at love with um, both eyes open and, and understanding that, you know, our family of origin um, can set us up to put romantic love in a place of power that it should not be you know, to believe that a romantic partner will complete you and, you know, will sort of make all of your dreams come true. Like, you know, the people in SLAA, at least the people I knew were looking, you know, wide eyed at that and and seeing that for what it is, which is a myth. Um, So I, I decided that I didn't, I would not let myself be consumed by these feelings because I didn't want to destroy my life um, and my family. Um, And I, I think, yeah. I'll just, I think, great that you also understood consequences, um, and of course that is just really the enormity of that. But you write in in your book um, about making another person. I'm going to quote here a lover into a god. When so much of a person is colonized, overtaken like this, the object of affection can become a kind of deity. Once the man and I start talking again, we're always talking. Um, but I, mm-hmm. I would say it's not so much a conversation as it is a kind of blood flow. It's a communication that is robbing you. It's giving you what you think of as nourishment, but it's also robbing you of some essential way of getting at the wreck because now you're involved yes. totally with the myth. Um, yes. which is, it's really, really intense, uh, intensive. I had to because, and, and I, I appreciate your admitting, and really the whole book is so candid um, and just wonderfully written, but um, I appreciate your admitting, you know, the complex feelings that you had about going to sex and love addiction 
uh, groups, I then had to turn to um, a book that I had on my shelf, The War of Gods uh, in Addiction uh, by David Schoen. Um, and he, he, is, he is a writer that talks about um, the archetypes that have always tempted us with the fantasy and possibility that we might become gods. Um, that, that somehow it's like, you know, the vampires allure. It's erotic and it promises eternal life, um, even though it's the living dead. It feels like, you know, to me, it's almost like heroin or drugs. It, it negates all the anxieties that we have and our social inadequacies. And we feel powerful. Mm-hmm. We feel powerful in these obsessions. And really, it is something that's, you know, robbing us of all power. Because the power yeah. that you, you display in, in the book by writing, completely finding your voice um, to confront issues of inequality in the church and um, really acknowledging a lot of things that, you know, of course, to get along, you went along. We understand that. But once you gained your voice, there was so much more power than there ever was yeah. in this session with this man. Um, yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I realized, um, you know, the other thing you you admit to is that, you know, you were you were gonna you were just about to obsess you were just about to substitute one compulsion for another. Because the man says to you, if you were mine and you say, Is this what I need to belong to someone else to be claimed, plucked out of one existence and delivered into another? I mean, this is great that you had these um you, you know these these moments of revelation. So I, you know, again, congratulate you. And I would say in addition to the consequences, you know, once you penetrate that matrix, um, you know, of, of fidelity or of trust, you, you, you don't have it anymore. It's, it's, it's the ruins that you're, you're dealing with, you know, after, after that. And I, I really, um, I think I, I just appreciate so much that you came back to yourself the, the, with the time that we have left, and it's just a couple minutes, I, I really, they, you get to this point where you're in, a, you're in a coffee shop with your friend Kate um, towards the end of the story. And, you know, you're, you're talking about what faith could possibly mean at this point. And, you know, you say, I think that yeah, I think of high, higher power in my mind snaps shut. Um, you know, that's your quote. And you say your, your friend Kate says, it's Johnny Cash. It's cold creams. It's things that, you know were vibrational for her um, that resonate and give us inspiration and are transportive. Would you say that that's yeah. also one of the takeaways, uh, this, the takeaways of this beautiful book? Yeah. She, I mean, that was such a big moment for me because, you know, Kate is a, a veteran um, in recovery and she was trying to explain to me like what higher power is. And she was simply saying for me, my first, she said my first higher power was, the sound of Johnny Cash's voice and the smell of my grandmother's cold cream. And so, you know, back to the body, right? These are tangible experiential things that, that give us a sense of peace of, of, of being loved, of being, um, of being safe, you know, and, and, and I try, I'm trying to go back to that now, you know, I think that's good guidance for any spiritual practice is what are the things that, um, that transport you to a place of, of peace and comfort. Um, and this is a time to really lean into those things. 
Totally. And safety. We're going to end here with that note. It's been wonderful being with you. The book is This Is My Body. Let's be mindful, everyone, what we do with our bodies and stay safe. It's Cameron Desen Hammond. You can find her at www.cameradesenhammond. Thank you so much, Cameron. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 